Welcome to another episode of NDS's Sector Development Podcast. My name's David Moody, and I'm the State Manager of National Disability Services in Victoria. NDS is Australia's and Victoria's peak body for non-government disability service providers. As always, for these podcasts, I'm joined by NDS's NDIS Transition Advisor, Pascal Dreyer. Welcome, Pascal. Hi, David. And we're also joined today by our special guest, Leanne Napper, Manager of Community Inclusion and Projects at GenU, one of the first providers to trial the NDIS. GenU has taken a strategic approach to capacity building, which has resulted in successful outcomes for participants in areas of employment, independent living and mainstream inclusion. Welcome, Leanne. Hello, David. Today we're talking about what it takes to successfully build capacity for people under the NDIS. We will be discussing how the NDIS has changed the way service providers, such as GenU, deliver services and how to include clients in decision-making processes. So Leanne, to begin, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit of a cook's tour of the sort of supports that you currently offer and what that work looks like. Okay, that's a big task, David. That's what we're here (laughs) for. GenU offers a lot of support, different sorts of supports. So we have capacity building supports and there are three streams of capacity building supports. We do support coordination, independent lives, which is a mixture of a lot of different capacity building supports, but all aimed around independence. So it includes tenancy, various sorts of skill development for people with a disability or and or a psychosocial disability. So it can those skill development supports can be anything from working with people around social isolation to developing, you know, cooking skills at home so that someone can live independently or to tenancy. So someone might want to live either in private um, rental accommodation or social housing or even supported housing. So that independent lives supports a wide variety of people in a very individualised and targeted way to reach the capacity building goals that are in their um, plan. And then we have Employment Pathways, which is targeted um, support to assist people into employment, either mostly into um, open employment, but also for some into supported employment Um, and even volunteering as a stepping stone to open employment. Another area that we have is group-based supports. So that can include a wide variety of activities, both in the community and some centre-based, and that's for people with an intellectual disability. We have other supports for people with a psychosocial disability or for people with ABI. We also have shared supported accommodation and that we have quite a lot of houses both in Geelong and in other areas of Victoria uh, supporting many people in a supported accommodation setting, also um, others in um, social housing. We have mental health supports. So, well, GenU offers a broad range of disability supports um, across Geelong, Wyndham area, Bayside, and also down in Barwon Southwest. The supports are around people becoming more independent, living independently within the community or either independently or supported within the community. 
Isn't it true, though, that yeah. GNU now has over 200 outlets around Australia with 2,800 staff? It's certainly been a growing organisation in the disability sector over the last couple of years. Of that, there's no doubt. Absolutely it is. It's grown massively. Our supports have become far more individualised and tailored to the person's goals and their needs. There's been far more one-to-one support, and this has meant that it is actually easier to, to target to those needs. And Leanne, I wonder if I could jump in there for a second. You've gone down this path to a more individualised approach, a more customer-centred approach. What level of engagement have you had with people with disability to actually understand what they need? Well, they told us. Participants themselves told us that and also our support workers who were working with them. And also we employed some um, workers who were with DES, who are actually gun workers with DES, and they had identified that there was a group of people with disabilities who could work with the right support, but they needed far more intensive support than what a DES could offer. So it came from many directions. Yep. And it was obvious that that was something that we needed to develop. We've actually developed a program called the Employment Pathways Program. And we um, decided to develop that based on what we were hearing from people with a disability, that they were really keen to get into work and that just going to a DES wasn't, or Disability Employment Service wasn't actually working for them. They required far more support. What we found is that people with disabilities have been able to move either from a day service into mainstream open employment or even out of an ADE into open employment with this sort of support. Mm -hmm. So it's been very important and, and really quite successful. So we developed that based on what we knew was important to the scheme, that's the NDIS scheme, and also... Um, what had been identified that you know people with disabilities were not well represented in the employ in employment, mm. and that they actually did have a desire to be employed and were able to be employed with the right sorts of supports. And how important do you think it is to sort of maintain awareness of what your consumer wants and sort of garner that feedback on a regular basis? How important is that to, I suppose, being successful, do you think, under the NDIS? Well, I think it's absolutely mandatory that you do that because what you're really doing um, in working within an NDIS environment is working with the person to achieve the goals that they've identified in their plan. And you can't do that if you don't actually ask them. <laughs> so all of our capacity building supports are around that. They start with the person and we work with them to, um, to identify what works for them in reaching their goals. And that will be different for every individual. So that's been a real strength and a very enjoyable way to deliver services and to be able to see people reach their goals or at least come closer to what their goals are has been really exciting. No, it certainly sounds like it would be. That's fantastic, Leanne. And in terms of those changes you may have had to make to your systems and processes and evaluation measures to support that capacity building amongst your clients, amongst people with disability, I wonder what measures did you have to take and it'd be really interesting to hear of any particular examples you might be willing to share with us. Well, what we what we did as far as our processes, there are a number of things that we did. For example, with support coordination, we set up a separate support coordination. And the reason we did that was to, because it is actually 
um, needs to be at arm's length from the service delivery. So to do that, we actually set it up in a different capacity to operate alongside but outside of our general branch-type structure. So there was that separation there between the two? Yes, we separated it so that we were work, you know, dealing with the potential conflict of interest that can arise with being both a service deliverer and doing coordination of support. We also looked at different areas. So we have actually set up an area called Independent Lives, and that works specifically on capacity building supports that are around skill development in, and, and skill development can mean, mean different things for different people. It depends entirely on what they're wanting to do, what their goals are in their life and in their plan. And then, of course, our employment pathways area. So we've got specific areas that deal with capacity building, but then we have a capacity building ethos throughout our core supports as well. Now, some of the the other things that we've done is um, our planning process. We actually do a capacity building plan that actually looks at what the person's goals are and um, and what the strategies are that they um, that they want, they think will assist them to work towards their goal. And then we, we look at the outcomes. And from that, after a certain period, we are able to measure as to how close they've come or how what progress they've made towards the outcomes that they've identified. So do you track outcomes in any other way? So you've sort of said how you, you work with the participant to plan, identify some strategies, and, and you clearly indicate what you're going to do. And then, you know, on the basis of having done that, you can sort of identify whether or not an outcome has been reached. How do you sort of track that? What sort of, I suppose, mechanism do you have to, is it based on conversations? Do you have, a you know, in your client management system, is, is there something particular which picks this up as well? Well, obviously a plan is not, like you don't do it once. Yeah. It's actually a living document. So we do go back and relook with the person, go back and relook at what progress has been made and, and talk with them about what else might assist to reach that goal that they want. Things change in people's lives. And um, so it's got to remain individual right the way through, not just, oh, we've got a plan and then at the end in 12 months we'll measure. But, you know, it's about working with the person in an ongoing capacity and re-looking at what, you know, how things are going. Our client management system, like our file notes and that sort of thing actually track how the person is progressing and what changes they want to make and and then we, we do our reports based on that yeah. and what the person wants. Do you find that it takes a bit of time to, to go through that, I suppose, regularly checking in with the person, tracking those outcomes? Is it very time-consuming and does it take away sometimes or, or is it something that it's very much integrated into your actual delivery of, of support? It's totally integrated into our delivery of support. So I wouldn't say it's time-consuming. Yeah. It's just part of practice. Okay, so we were keen to understand the NDIS participant perspective about how the GenU team is building the capacity of their customers. We sent Kira from NDS's communications team down to the GenU office to interview Clinton and Scott, and here's what they had to say. Scott, can you please tell me about the GenU program you are involved in? At the moment, they've been helping me with home stuff and work stuff as well. 
and I met Dave through Matchworks. Um, we got to know each other, build a trust. Then we uh, we found a job, and so that was good. And went off, went off there, um, and then he helped me support me through all that. Unfortunately, I couldn't keep that job with my medical, and then um, so then Dave helped me support and got me into another job as well, which is where I am now at Magic Meadows. There I do um, I pack fruit and veg in boxes. Do that on the Wednesdays, and on the Mondays I do farm work. I do like my job. And why did you choose to participate in Employment Pathways? I was actually living at my mum and dad's. I ended up um, getting in, uh, I think it was Headspace or something like that, which I had like uh, Linda Brady, and she helped me got a house. And then it went from there and then into Matchworks and then it just interlinked with Coringal. That's how I met Dave and yeah, and then I started to, to get work. So now that Scott's employment has is quite stable and is stabilised. There's no real issues that uh, are resulting from his employment. That's all. That's all wonderful. We're actually doing some capacity building in some other areas as well. So yeah, great. Did you want to tell me about that? Yeah, that's pretty much. Um, Dave's been helping me a lot with other stuff, like learning how to do bank online and stuff. Um, how to um, approach. Like I've had problems with my phones and Dave went and helped me with, with dealing with Telstra and stuff. And the good thing about that was that um, Dave actually was there the whole time with me, but he stepped back and let me do what I had to had to explain and stuff. And then the second I got a little bit, was getting a little bit tricky for me, Dave stepped in and gave me a bit of guidance and spoke to him. And then when I was able to take back over, he stood back and let me take over again. He didn't make me feel like I was useless or anything like that. And it's also teaching me how to teaching me how to deal with things myself. For instance, the other day, part of part of it was Scott has the story in his head. He can see what he he wants, uh, you know, fixed out of the out of, out of the problem, and he knows how he wants to go about it. But Scott needed to explain the full story, so he tell he was telling. I guess little bits and pieces for yeah. Scott. So one of the things that I say to Scott is make sure that you're letting the other person know all the details as well. So little things like that where it makes it much easier for Scott moving forward to be able to deal with other issues that arise as well. And it also comes up with things such as employment where communication is the key to keeping all these things on track. So yeah, what I've achieved the most is living independently. Yeah which is what I really, really enjoy. And having a job, it just gives you a meaning. It gives you yeah. something to actually do. Yeah. And yeah, and it's just, um, yeah, it's better than sitting around doing nothing. And it just, um, yeah, that little bit of extra money gives you, gives you a bit of help to actually go off and do things. And yeah, no, it's good. So we're joined by Clinton today. So can you please tell me about the program you're involved with at GenU? I joined up with GenU. Uh, this is my second year. I was at a bad point in my life and probably needed a bit of a hand to get back on my feet. I don't think I would have been back there without the help of GenU. I came with an open mind, wanting to see what they could offer or what they could do. I managed to sort out 
my tax situation, which was something that was on my mind and causing me quite a few dramas. I got help to go and backtrack and get my tax up to date, yeah. Okay, wonderful. Did you want to make some mention to about, at the moment too, we're also working on the budget and looking at your finances there as well? Yeah, um, Tell typed in an app and we did a bit of a, a look at my spending and uh, it wasn't that crash hot with how much money I had. It's a little bit out, so we're going about doing a budget now. And uh, Jenny helped me sort that out. Tell helped me sort that out, which is um, a massive relief. I'm back at the gym now, which I haven't been for 10 years, give or take. And now we're up to, we're about to engage in some cooking classes. It's something I identified quite some time ago that I wanted to do because I can't really cook. <laughs> and um, it's definitely something that'll help me to live more independently. So in terms of what we just heard then from Scott and Clinton, Leanne, there was a, a huge amount that both had achieved for themselves with Genu's support, certainly on the evidence of those two clips. But in some respects, those clips don't necessarily tell the story of how Scott and Clinton were supported to achieve the results that they did. And that's what I think we're really interested in finding out now, and not just what was achieved, but how Genu supported both Clinton and Scott to achieve those ends when supporting a person with disability to achieve everything they want to achieve and to build their capacity, their capability. I think with both um, Scott and Clinton, the first thing that you notice is the rapport that the worker has with each of those young men. And I think that's a number one starting point. The Employment Pathways Program has a number of processes that they work through with people. They, they assess where that person is at as far as their life skills and where they're at with employment skills. And from that, they work on a plan to assist, with, they work with the person on a plan to develop the skills that they need and, and then to, to work with them to find the right type of employment that will suit them. So, for example, with employment, if you like if you don't have transport to get to where you're working, well, that's an issue. Is that a problem for Scott? Um, well, not so much for Scott because he actually does drive. But what it, what he needed was to, once he actually had an employment location, to drive to that location. So he needed assistance with you know learning a direction. Like he can be quite independent, but he does need some support prior to that. So how did you um, support Scott to learn a direction? Well, to the point of him following Dave from his home to the location and doing that a number of times and then Dave basically working his way back from that. How many times would Dave have had to be engaged in supporting Scott to take a particular route before Scott was able to acclimatise himself to that route and do it himself? Oh, three or four times. Three or four times? Okay. Yes. So for somebody else, that could just be catching a bus to the yep. location. So they're all those basic things, like the person needs to be able to, you know, be able to get to a place on time. They need to have employment skills. Uh, there might be a whole lot of personal things that they need to work on prior to being able to get to work. 
like homelessness. I mean, this is nothing to do with Scott, but for example, you know, if you if you don't have a permanent place to live, it's very difficult to be employed. Mm. So that program works through all of the specific, well, not all of them, but as many as they can, the specific issues that relate to employment. Then they actually do, they work with the person to understand their skills and interests and how that applies to the work that might be best for them. For example, Scott really likes working with animals and plants. So that's the area that they pursued in terms of finding the right employer for him. And um, Because that was Scott's preference. That was what to he work wanted with to animals do. animals and plants. Okay. Yes. Yes. So you don't go off looking for mechanics. You actually <laughs> <laughs> look and our employment pathways has a lot of contacts around the Geelong area in all sorts of different types of employment. So they're able to use those uh, networks to find outcomes for people. So then they, they would also work with the employer on what the sorts of things that Scott would need to make it work for him specifically and um, do a lot of potentially work with Scott in the employment to um, initially particularly to assist him to develop the skills that are needed, you know, to be successful in that employment placement. And then just to be able to keep going back and just checking that things are going well and with both Scott and with the employer and gradually backing off and probably seeing, you know, becoming less and less involved as a person becomes more independent. So in terms of uh, Clinton... What was the background that he came to GNU with that saw him requiring support to uh, develop better life skills and a greater level of independence? For Clinton, he was very socially isolated. And so for him to actually move out of that situation and to start to go to gym was a really big move for him and an important move because it becoming more comfortable with um, going out and mixing with other people in a gym situation, something he really loves to do. So it was a great um, vehicle for that. Something that he has felt comfortable about doing in the past has been really important and really a good start in terms of him being able to start to move into other more social situations. So how the worker worked with Clinton was to accompany him to the gym on a number of occasions so that he felt very comfortable going to the gym and starting to relate socially to the people within the gym setting. And then he's actually been able to slowly work backwards and Clinton's continued to go to the gym, which is, you know, a really important um, move for him. And it's meant that he's become, uh, he's joined groups um, as was as you heard in the um, in the recording, and um, he's been able to become more socially involved generally. But it did start with the gym. And what was the background and qualifications of the support worker who accompanied Clinton to the gym? Was he uh, did he have a particular level of certificated training, or was he simply a fellow who enjoyed going to the gym himself? And that was the basis on which he and Clinton matched up with each other. The worker has a diploma. At the, has qualifications at diploma level, uh, but he also has a significant amount of experience in working with people with psychosocial disability. And he does have a really good rapport, particularly with young people, as he's young himself. So it was about, I suppose, in all of 
when you're working with capacity building supports it's and other supports too, but we're only talking about capacity building, it's really important that the support worker actually um, be the right worker, mm. like actually be able to... Um, be able to relate well to that person. And does Jen, you go through a process of matching support workers with particular clients? Um, with the, I'm only can only talk for capacity building supports, but sure. yes, we do. That's one of the considerations when we actually ask someone to work with um, one of the participants. And does the participant have a say in who they're working with? So, I mean, I'd imagine if if. Um, if they weren't happy, they, there certainly would be a process. But in the initial yes. sense, so before a worker has been allocated, how does the participant's, I suppose, point of view play into your decision making? Well, sometimes participants actually ask for particular people because they've known them. But sometimes oh, we don't have an interview process. But, you know, as you say, if they're not happy with someone, we certainly do find them someone else. But otherwise, we match them as best we can with you know, similar interests or skills. So we know that Gen U has successful outcomes across a range of the different services it offers, whether it be supporting the employability of people with disability, their independence, essentially living in accommodation, and also being included in mainstream services. I wonder if you would mind telling us a bit about how Gen U achieved this. Well, I think firstly it's by listening to our participants and finding out what it is that works for them. Also, and then developing services and supports around that. It's also um, having the right staff. So we, particularly in those specific areas, we've made sure that we've employed staff who have those kind of skills. So they're, they're not necessarily a support worker. They might be someone who, as I mentioned with um, Employment Pathways, someone who's actually come from another sector like employment or even with tenancy and housing from the tenancy and housing sector who have really good understanding of how to support someone to become more independent in their living arrangements. As far as um, supporting people into mainstream inclusion, and that can mean a lot of different things for different people, I think we do need people who work for us who can actually facilitate that for other people, who have a really good understanding of what it is out there that's available in the community and are good at working with the community to actually achieve outcomes with people with a disability so that they can become far more included in their own communities. So in terms of recruiting people of the type that you're talking about, what process do you go through to do it? I mean, is it is it still one-on-one employment interviews? Is it is it group work where people are being observed in order to determine that they they may have the right values and behaviours? Is there a particular level of certificated training that you're looking for? What criteria are you actually taking into account in making these employment decisions? Well, often you actually do have people that you know within your own workforce that have those skills, particularly community inclusion skills, and it's about working with them and developing them further so that they can really work in a targeted way with people. So we have actually done specific recruitments. We've looked at other areas of our business, such as our employment side of our business, to um, recruit 
staff from there who've got the skills or even um, some of our tenancy workers working in um, a different area of our business have actually been able to come across and work in the dis- the NDIS environment. And Leanne, how important would you say it is that staff who are supporting people with disability are working with rather than doing for? Well, that's what capacity building means. So it's, yeah. it's absolutely everything. What we don't want is people who do for because not, you just a person does not build their own capacity. So, um, so that's actually paramount. And that's what we do recruit for in those particular roles. We want people who are facilitators more than um, carers and who can assist people to really become as independent as possible in, in all areas of their life, but particularly in these targeted areas that are in their NDIS, their goals within their NDIS plan. Do you think that the sector has had to shift a bit from perhaps a bit of a doing for model to a facilitating model under the NDIS? Do you think that there has been a bit of a shift that has had to happen? I like to think that we've always worked to support people to be more independent, but I suppose this is just more, um, it emphasises it a lot more in that you've got a, a particular goal around, say, for example, moving into my own home within the community and actually you're looking at specifically that outcome and you're working with the person towards that outcome. So it's a different, slightly different way of thinking. So I think it's more about more of rather than okay. that we've never done it before. But I think you're also saying, Leanne, at the risk of paraphrasing what you've said yes. back to you and getting it wrong, <laughs> you're saying that from your point of view, whether it be Karingal, Karingal St Lawrence or Gen U, and given your experience in the sector, that you've essentially always worked in a way which is about supporting people with disability rather than doing for them, as the case may be. Yes. That's interesting on several levels, one of which is that the Victorian sector, lest we forget, has in fact been engaged in providing individualised supports for at least as long as any other state in Australia. And I, I know that when the NDIS came to Barwon, that was perceived as being one of the advantages for the Victorian sector that we were already working in that sort of mindset, or at least trying to. Yes, I think the big changes for us are the business model that comes with all of that. Like, for example, um, billable hours six years ago was really never discussed, hmm. but now it is. Oh, I saw you grimace <laughs> we as have you a... were saying that too. <laughs> <laughs> now we have a very good understanding of billable hours. Hmm. And, and really that's come right, that business understanding is not just a role of corporate services anymore. That's what it used to be. But now it actually is right across the board. We all need to understand that um, we need to deliver services within a budgeted framework and also within... uh, And if we don't bill, we don't earn the income that we need to actually be sustainable. To keep the doors open and to grow, as the case may be. Exactly. Leanne, I wonder if we might move on to the concept of support coordination. And of course, Jen Yu is a support coordinator under the NDIS. I wonder if you can take us through the ways that support coordinators can work with participants to build their capacity. I actually think that support coordination is just an extremely important role. It really is the start of capacity building. I mean, it has an important role to play in 
participants having a better understanding of the NDIS and how it works and also of their plan. So that participant really needs to understand what is in their plan and what the goals are that they've worked on within the planning process with the NDIS or the LACs. And a support coordinator really can assist to um, demystify the language and so that they fully understand what it is that's in their plan. And our support coordinators have also said to me, look, that really the beginning developing and building trust and a trusting relationship with the participant is probably the first thing to do. Building trust, okay. Building yep. trust, yes. So those human things, regardless of what scheme that we work in, that those human things are really paramount. Mm-hmm. So once once a trusting relationship has been built, then you actually do have the opportunity often to work really closely with that participant to be able to int- implement their plan. And because it c- often takes quite a bit of creativity to implement the plan in a really personalised way, I think the important thing is that the outcomes that are expected are really realistic for that person because for some people you can back right off, but for others they really do need either longer to prepare for employment than might be in the current SLES arrangements or they need a little more support. And so that's still a really successful outcome for that person, but it may not like it really depends on whether those outcomes are flexible oh, and individualised. Yeah, yeah, and and mm. there certainly should be provisions, I think, for for ongoing funding where people need it, where where it may take a bit longer um, for someone to build their capacity. And given that Genu operates primarily in the in the Barwon region, would you say that that you've sort of the plans that you've you've been seeing come through? do really allow for you to have a good go at building someone's capacity? As you know, plans vary massively. Some are extremely good plans and do exactly that. They meet a person's needs for developing their capacity and others not so. And and that's what I was going to say about support coordination. One of the really important things for support coordination to be effective is the quality of the plan as well. I mean, we can work around that a bit, but it just makes life harder. And what sort of role do reports play in ensuring that further funding is included in the next plan? Is it recognising that, you know, not all supports may be funded to write a report necessarily, but how important is that process of tracking those outcomes and being able to document them and say, this is what we did? That's mandatory, And um, we always provide a progress report, particularly around capacity building supports, not so much core, Um, although our support coordinators do provide some feedback on that, on core supports. But with capacity building supports, the planner really has nothing to go on as to whether that support is reasonable and necessary to be refunded if you don't put, you know, pretty good evidence-based reports into the process. So what do you, when you use the phrase good evidence-based reports, what sort of evidence does GenU rely upon to demonstrate the outcomes that you're achieving through capability development work that you're doing with participants? Well, we develop a plan with a person that includes what they want, their goal, that is usually an NDIS goal, and then goals that come from that um, that are more specific that they want to achieve. And we work with strategies, 
there are a range of strategies that are developed around that and then what we ex- what they expect as an outcome or want as an outcome and we report based on that. So for some, if, if it's a tenancy, somebody's looking for a new home, well, um, they may actually have gained that. It might be in the private rental market mm-hmm. or, you know, um, social housing or something like that. So tick, that's obviously, a, you know, an evidence that the supports have been delivered. But sometimes that person might actually just need a little bit more maintenance support to maintain their um, tenancy obligations. And so it's really important that that goes into a report back to the planner. Otherwise, the tendency is not to put it in. And that could actually mean that the person doesn't maintain their tenancy obligations. So is it important? Into the future. So, Sorry to interrupt, Lynn. So is it is it important then to consider, I suppose, the barriers and potential risks when you're writing a report? Yes, that's right. Yep. It is. I mean, for example, there's other considerations too. Say with tenancy, there's actually a limited supply of reasonably priced, say, you know, flats and units around the Geelong region that are priced at two fifty dollars a week and below. And if people don't receive, like if they go into those um, rental properties and then things happen, that actually is not good for other people's um, ability to gain those supports, those rental properties. So there's a lot of good reason to make sure that people are supported when they need it. Not everybody needs a bit of ongoing tenancy support, but there's enough that do. There are people who do. Can you give us some examples, particularly for those providers who aren't yet part of the scheme, and I realise that's an increasingly small number, but what sort of goals, when you talk about those which are particularly broad being the ones easiest to work with, what sort of goals are you talking about? By way of example. I want to increase my inclusion in the community. Could I ask you this? Is that so broad as to be almost meaningless in terms of providing guidance to a provider as to you know, how to support the individual? It really is what comes after that. Like you can get a bit of an idea depending on whether there's a good description about the person's current situation. Also, sometimes when you get to the funded supports, there's actually a reasonably good description about what exactly they mean by that. But also, if, the, if there is actually, even if there isn't, Provided that the supports are in an area that we can assist them with, like, for example, if they they want to increase their inclusion in the community, if they've got capacity building around increasing their community participation, I mean, either a support coordinator or a um, person delivering those supports can actually work with the person to really nail down on what it is that they want to do with that support. So we can work around that. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that in, in a sense that, yes, increasing your capacity to, you know, be included in the community, yes, that it's a very broad statement, could probably apply to almost everyone, in a sense, you know, in, in some particular format. But that's actually the beauty of it. it. It's because it then allows service providers to really get down and, and break that goal down and understand, all right, well, what does it mean to you? to be more included in the community. And then that actually, I think, truly enacts that flexibility of the funding. Because if the goal is mm. so, so specific as I want to attend X cooking program, that's all the funding can be used for. 
the, the goals play such a central role in those funding decisions. I mean, as, as we've sort of been talking, there is such a central part of that reasonable and necessary framework. Mm. And the messaging from the agency is that providers have to be working to, to those goals. If you're not working to those goals, what are you doing? Yes. You're, you're working outside the scope of the plan, which means... Yeah. Yes, because we're, we're employed. Yep. When I talk about customers earlier, we've got NDIA is definitely one of our customers, or we're a customer of theirs, I suppose. But, you know, you really do need... that. They're paying for those supports, and we do need to um, deliver on... On the support, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and and more specifically, the person with disability has particular expectations, and they have a reasonable expectation that that, that they will be met. Exactly. So the two customers go together in a sense, <laughs> but it's so important that the plan is actually what the person wants. Yeah. Like if they've changed their mind about that cooking class, what do you do? You need yeah. a plan review, really, don't you? Yep. Mm. Yeah, yeah. With all that goes with it in That's terms right. of um, the current delays. Yes, it's not easy. No, it no, wouldn't it's be. It's quite stressful for the participant. Okay, well, look, that seems to be a good note on which to um, conclude the podcast this week. On behalf of National Disability Services, I just want to thank Leanne Napper from Gen U for your time today, Leanne. And also, and always, um, Pascal Dreyer, NDS's NDIS Transition Advisor. Thanks to both of you. And for all of our listeners, hopefully our growing horde of listeners, we'll look forward to um, joining you next time for the next NDS Sector Development Podcast. Catch you soon. Thank you. NDS has produced a range of resources to assist Victorian service providers navigating NDIS operations for their business. Head to nds.org.au forward slash SDP to visit our NDIS sector development project website where you can access valuable information and resources in our NDIS resource library, find podcast show notes, access our free online 24-7 NDIS help desk, subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter and find information and registration links for our NDIS readiness and implementation workshops, which we host right around Victoria in regions currently undergoing NDIS transformation. That's nds.org.au forward slash SDP. The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services, copyright 2018. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 